This is Alan Gilman, and you're listening to Thinking Biblically for February the 24th, 2020. This is the Thinking Biblically podcast with Bible teacher Alan Gilman. Alan regards the entire Bible as the only inspired written Word of God. Through his teaching, he seeks to apply all Scripture to every area of life. More information about Alan Gilman's Bible teaching is available at his website, alangilman.ca. Welcome back to Thinking Biblically. This is Alan Gilman, and uh, it's a beautiful day in Canada's capital this afternoon. It's almost 10 degrees Celsius, almost 50 degrees Fahrenheit, and sunny. Uh, That doesn't mean the winter is over by any means. Uh, There's snow in the forecast later on this week, and it's going to get cold again, but we will take this, we'll take whatever we can get as we enjoy this spring-like day today. I want to get right into this week's podcast, and I'm really excited. For the the past few weeks, we've been looking at how to understand the Bible and read the Bible on its own terms, and I've been talking about how we often read the Bible through skewed lenses, that we uh, that there's other influences through which we we look at the Bible, and and that leads us down uh, some uh, unhelpful paths, and we don't really read the Bible uh, on its own terms. Uh, I call these approaches uh, misguided inter- way of looking at it as skewed lenses. And what I'm excited about this week is we're going to look at the positive. We're going to look at what I believe is um, a clear lens through which to read the Bible. And for some people, this might be some laser eye surgery. Um, Some of this might be quite new to you. Um, And that's that's because we're so used to reading the Bible the way that we always have. Um, But um, I believe that what I'll be sharing with you is going to help you see the Bible more clearly than ever before, and that it's going to be a huge blessing for for your life. And so we're looking at the centrality of Israel in the plan of God, which I believe is core to effectively understanding the Bible on its on its own terms. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to see we're going to look at various points uh, on this theme. Uh, throughout various parts of Scripture, uh, while this topic, the centrality of Israel and the plan of God, can be a book, even some of these points themselves can can be a, a book to itself. Um, but we're just going to quickly as possible go through through these, and then next time, God willing, we're going to see well what's the benefit to us by seeing the Bible this way. That probably doesn't really need to be explained on in one sense because the better we see what God is saying in His Word and the way that He intended us to see it uh, is going to be beneficial. But I think there's some particular benefits that we've been missing or not getting like we should because of the skewed lenses through which we've seen the Bible. So, so here we go. We're looking at <clears throat> excuse me. We're looking at the centrality of Israel in the plan of God. And this starts in Genesis chapter 12 with the call of Abraham, at that time called Abram, where God calls this elderly, childless man to go to a land he doesn't know, a foreign place, um, and there he would make him into a great nation, make his name great. And he says to him that through him, 
uh, all the nations or all the families of the earth will bless themselves or will be blessed. And what we see here is after the the, the beginnings of Scripture, uh, the creation, the disobedience of the first human beings, the curse that God um, pronounces on the people and the earth itself, and then what follows after that, and we see the experience of, of human beings spiraling down and spiraling down, and we get to this point where some say this is really where the, the, the Bible, the story of the Bible begins, with God's promise to Abraham that should he obey God and trust him, that all the nations of the world will be blessed. The word blessed in Hebrew, it, it's the, the word barach, and it means to fill something with the potential for life. It's the opposite of cursing. Cursing is arar, and that's the, the sucking out of life, bringing death. And what God was saying by calling Abraham, what he was promising to him, was that through his descendants, God would break the curse. He would push back the darkness. He would bring restoration, not just to human beings, but to the creation itself. Galatians 3.8 calls the promise to Abraham the gospel. Paul refers to the promise, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed, as the gospel. The gospel is more than Jesus dying and rising for our sins. The Messiah's death for our sins and his, his rising from the dead is core to what the gospel is all about. But And maybe another time I'll get more into what the fullness of the gospel is according to Scripture. But for our purposes today, what the gospel, what the gospel is is the breaking of the curse. And the, break, the promise of the breaking of the curse bringing salvation, salvation means rescue, the rescue of the creation, the rescue of the people of the creation, that this was centered upon a man and the development of a particular nation through this man. The promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 was passed on to to his son Isaac, and then it was passed to Isaac's son Jacob through whom the 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob's name was changed by God to Israel. That's why the people that come from Jacob are called the sons of Israel. We used to say the children of Israel. The people of Israel all come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God chose this particular people through whom the, the blessing promised to Abraham would come to the entire world. And I might say this again later on. I might say it many times. God chose the people of Israel for the nations. God wanted to bring the creation back to himself, including the people of the creation back to himself. He wanted to rescue human beings from the effects of the curse. How did he do that? Well, people jump ahead quickly and say, well, he did that through the Messiah, Yeshua, the the Lord Jesus. That's true. But the the context of Jesus' coming, the context of the Messiah's coming, is within the story of Israel, the story of the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is how the revelation of God through Scripture is told. 
So I, I can't emphasize the both and enough. The, the way God brings a salvation to the world was by the choosing of a particular person and through him creating a particular nation through whom the blessing came for the whole world. Often when we want to talk about restoring Israel's place in uh, the plan of God and, and helping people understand this from a, a biblical point of view, very often we they think that, oh, we're, we're creating um, second-class citizens out of, out of non-Jews, out of people who are not part of the nation of Israel. And we looked last time at the at three phases of replacement theology. And if you haven't listened to that, you might want, want to. And we, we see there either how the church sees them itself as Israel and replaces Israel that way. Or sometimes people over-identify by, by believing in the Jewish Messiah. They become Jewish sort of idea. And I get into to some other points, but um, for, for our sake want to hold this in balance that God chose a particular people for the benefit of all peoples and he's able to do both and in the most fair and just way and 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 there isn't a tension in God in how we could refer to Israel as the chosen people while at the same time understanding that that chosenness in is about everyone without neglecting Israel. We can go around and around with, uh, with this. And I, I think it's important to go around and around to, to, to see how this is so connected so that we don't overemphasize one, uh, emphasize one over the other. And so the development of God's plans and purposes in Scripture is centered on Israel. And I'm going to use... Uh, Israel, the Jewish people, sometimes people call this group of people the Hebrews. When I was in, in public school in Montreal years ago, we were uh, in the sign, uh, the, in the spot for religion on, on a forum, I remember they told us to write Hebrew. A lot of Jewish or- organizations were called Hebrew organizations. It's a synonym, Hebrew, Jewish, the people of Israel. It's all the same group. It's all the same people group. All the same ethnic group, the Jewish people, the people of Israel. And so um, when we talk about Israel as, as, um, as the centrality of Israel in the plan of God and Israel's place in Scripture, Israel's not the warm-up. It's not the warm-up to something. It's not as if the, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, whatever you want to call that section of the Bible, it's not as if Oh, God chose the Jewish people to, to do some things, to show some things for centuries and centuries, and then the good stuff finally comes when the Messiah comes. And the first part of the Bible is simply the warm-up. It's not, it's, it's, Israel is central to the story of Scripture. And I'm going to show how that's true all the way through the entire Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament, the New Covenant Scriptures. Uh, one of the ways we see this is when, when Paul in Romans 11 speaks about uh, the God's ongoing concern for the, the Jewish people, and he talks about the grafting in of alien branches, the bringing into the plans and purposes of God 
of people from the nations. He refers, when he's talking about Jewish people of his day, that at that, at that point were not believing in Yeshua, but might change and begin to believe in Yeshua, and they are then regrafted into that tree. The tree is referred to their own olive tree. Whatever that olive tree means in its fullness, it, there's a sense in which it's, the, it's a Jewish tree. In, in the sense that it's the, it's the tree that uh, is, was developed by God over time through which uh, he has made himself known. And when a Jewish person is brought to Messiah, comes to Messiah... We're really home. We're where we've always were to be. And for the non-Jewish world to come to the Jewish Messiah, that's foreign. That's, in a sense, historically, that's strange. That's why in the early chapters of the book of Acts, one of the the biggest problems, big problems they had at the beginning was what are we going to do with these non-Jews who want to believe in the Jewish Messiah? And um, the reason why that was such a problem is because they thought that their faith was so Israel-centric that people from the nations had to become Jewish in order to be fully accepted by the community. And they dealt with that in Acts 15. That's beyond the scope of, of what I'm sharing today. So we're going to leave that. The, the point is that this, the good news of Messiah is a part of this larger story of God revealed in the Scriptures that is a Jewish story. And if we fail to understand the Jewishness of this story, we begin to cut off God's truth from the roots in which it was planted and the roots in which it was cultivated and grown and, and, and grew. And so when the Deliverer comes to save in fulfillment of the prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures, he's coming first and foremost as the Deliverer of Israel. See, we often want to jump ahead And think about Yeshua as the Savior of the world. And He is that. But He can only be that as He fulfills who He is as the King of Israel, the Messiah of Israel. It's the Messiah of Israel who's the Savior of the world. And we see that in various ways. Well, first, uh, just one example. We don't have time to go into the prophecies themselves, which would be helpful. But Jeremiah chapter 31, starting at verse 31, is the prediction in the Hebrew Bible about the new covenant that's coming, one that is not going to be like the one given to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And who is being addressed in that passage? It refers to the people of Judah, and the people of Israel. At at that time, and in fact, the northern kingdom of Israel was already overcome by the Assyrians, and Jeremiah was living in the, later on, a hundred years later, in the time of the Babylonians. But the 
kingdom of Israel had split into two. It was still all the people of Israel, but the north was called Israel or Ephraim, and the south was called Judah, which is where we get Jewish from. Um, and so when the promise of the new covenant comes, in response to the people of Judah and Israel breaking the old covenant, and God promises a new covenant, who's being promised the new covenant? In Jeremiah 31, where the promise of the new covenant is, there is no mention of the nations. There are messianic prophecies that mention the nations. Isaiah 11 is one of them. Also in Isaiah is where we read about the, the, the lion and the lamb sitting down together, giving the impression that the coming of God's restoration was not just going to be for the people of Israel, the Jewish people, but for the entire creation. But in Jeremiah 31, only the Jewish people are in view. The promise of a new covenant was given, well, it had to be given to the people that had the older covenant. The reason for the giving of a new covenant was not specifically to resolve what happened in the garden to our first parents, Adam and Eve. It was, in a sense it was, the new covenant resolves the disobedience of Adam and Eve and its consequences. The new covenant resolves the curse of God upon human beings and the creation. But how this came to be specifically, the rollout, whatever you want to call it, was within the context of the people of Israel whom God had rescued from Egypt, had been given a covenant through Moses, a covenant that we broke, not just because we did a couple of naughty things, but because over and over again we kept turning to other gods. And finally God said, if we didn't change, we'd be in big trouble. And Jeremiah was living at a time where they were tasting much of that big trouble, and it was horrible. And yet through him he gives this promise that God wasn't going to be finished with the people of Israel, but he's going to establish a new covenant with them and actually take his word, the Torah, the directives of God, often translated law, but means directives. The truth of God, the word of God. He would take his word and he would put it in our hearts. Whose hearts was he going to put it in? The hearts of Israel and Judah. I don't want to lose the nations. But in order to understand how God's word and the new covenant comes to the nations, we first need to understand how it comes. And it comes within the context of the people of Israel. That's why when Paul is writing to the Romans, chapter 1 and verse 16, he refers to, he says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation or rescue to the Jew first and to the Greek, meaning the non-Jews, to the Jew first. And I remember years ago, many years ago now, when I was a new believer and I, I countered this, heard people talking about it, somewhere I picked up or I assumed that he was only talking historically. And, and that almost, that sounds kind of 
not logical, that the good news about Yeshua came to the Jewish people first, and then it went to the Gentiles. That's true. Though it, if you read Acts, for example, you see that Paul, who was called specifically to the nations, to the Gentiles, that over and over again he would go to his own people first. Well, so then you might think, okay, so yeah, there's that historical thing. It's coming to the Jews first before it goes to the non-Jews. But then there's this other priority thing. We should always try to bring it first to the Jews before we bring it to the non-Jews. Maybe there's something strategic there or there's a sense of honor being expressed. And, and maybe that's there. But that's not what he means. The good news of the coming of the Messiah is to the Jew first. Why? It's a Jewish gospel, fundamentally. In Ephesians, Paul refers to the, the non, he's talking to the non-Jewish believers, and he speaks about them that they had had no God or hope in the world. They were outside of the promises of God entirely. It's similar to the, the non-Jews in Romans 11 being the, the wild branches grafted in, contrary to nature, into the cultivated olive, olive tree, the Jewish olive tree. God's plans and purposes were being developed specifically within the, the, the people of Israel. And so the coming of the Messiah, what Messiah was coming? Well, it was the Jewish Messiah. There was no other Messiah. He was coming to save Israel from their predicament. That's what we read all the way through all the way through the prophets. I know what people have often done. They've come and then they've extracted those, those promises and they have generalized those promises. And they have universal implications. But in order to understand the universal implications of God's promises, we need to understand the context. We need to understand where they're coming from and what they're actually for in that context. And Messiah was coming to save primarily the people of Israel. And eventually we learned that that was going to have worldwide ramifications, which we have seen. The good news of Messiah has gone all over the world. And people are gathering, Jews and non-Jews. We believe non-Jewish people worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is, it is astounding. And then we actually lose, sadly, mo- most of the church, for most of church history, has relegated the Jewish people to, you know, the, to history, and they had their chance, and now they've blown it and that sort of thing. And if that would be the story, then that's the story, and we'd have to accept it. But it's not the story. God made a promise to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that includes the coming of the Messiah. And so he doesn't just come to Israel to fulfill some historical need. He came because he came primarily, first and foremost, to save Israel. So the gospel is primarily a Jewish gospel. But as I tried to say at the beginning, I don't, uh, this is not to diminish in any way God's heart for the nations. And it, and, and the, my people need to understand 
We were called to be a blessing to the nations. We exist not for ourselves, but to be a blessing to the nations. You know, is it about Israel? Is it about the nations? I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is it's everybody, Israel included. But in order for the blessing to come to the nations, God particularly focused on the people of Israel and developed a message, developed a mission within the context of these people. And not just back then. It's something that continues on. We'll get there in a moment. But we need to understand that the Savior of the world or is the, is the Jewish Messiah. The Jewish of the Messiah is the Savior of the world. That's what the wise men, the Magi, understood in Matthew chapter 2 when they came following the star and they came um, looking for he who is born King of the Jews. They didn't come looking. These people from probably Persia, maybe they'd been influenced by people like Daniel and others that had been taken to Babylon. Then the Persians became the new empire. It's possible that the Jewish people, as part of that exile, influenced uh, the Persian people. And this expectation of a great deliverer would come. And notice, they didn't just uh, discern that a great deliverer for the world was coming. They somehow knew to look for the king of the Jews. In, in the chapter before, Matthew 1, verse 21, Joseph is told by the angel, you will call him Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. And the our tendency is, is, has been, like we've done with so much of Scripture, is to take this verse and immediately make it universal. Thinking of Yeshua's people as those who follow him. But that's not what Joseph heard. Joseph understood the context in which he lived. Joseph understood his history. Joseph knew the scripture. He knew in what we now call the first century, he knew that, that the people of Israel were back from exile and yet still under foreign oppression. He knew things between his people and God were not good and that there was that hanging of judgment and God's disapproval, his disfavor upon Israel. It was sort of, yes, he's brought us back. He's shown his faithfulness, but something's wrong. And every time he saw a Roman soldier, it was a reminder that something was wrong. And all through the land of Israel, you had various parties who thought they knew what to do with that situation they were in. And there were several would-be messiahs because they knew the time was soon. And so when the angel said, you will call him salvation, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins, he understood rightly that his, the, the woman he was engaged to was carrying 
the promised deliverer who was going to relieve his people from that from the oppression that was due to their sin. He's going to he was going to come and release the people of Israel from oppression due to our sin. Just like Jeremiah 31 promised and so many other promises, the time had come for Israel to be delivered. Is there more to that than he understood? Yes. But it's not an other. It's more than what he understood. A lot of people like to focus on the fact that even Yeshua's followers, they thought he was going to beat up the Romans and and set the kingdom of Israel, uh, um, establish it in in their understanding of what they thought the Messiah would do, and that at that time he would rid the world of, 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 of war and evil and sickness and all the rest. They, they didn't, and it's clear they didn't understand the whole picture. They didn't understand that he had to die and rise. But what a lot of people have done is it's, oh, they didn't understand that it's a spiritual thing that he came to do and the spiritual thing is more important. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about you know the whole platonic split, of the material is bad and the spiritual is good kind of idea. And Yeshua came to bring a message of spirituality, not practicality. And that doesn't make sense in so many ways. And so what happened when Yeshua rose from the dead He didn't provide something completely other than what they expected. He provided more than what they expected. Because instead of conquering the Romans, he conquered their power because he conquered death. He didn't just dethrone Caesar who was oppressing the people of Israel and everybody else. He dethroned Satan the power that stood behind every other oppressive power. And then they were able to go, not caring whether they lived or die, proclaiming the good news that Messiah King has come and that we could be set free from the curse. But back to Joseph, he understood rightly what Messiah had come to do. And it was to rescue the people of Israel. In order to understand, this is kind of looking ahead a bit to when we're going to talk eventually about the benefits of looking through the scriptures this way. He understood who Messiah really was and what he'd come to do. That the universal implications don't negate the centrality of Israel and the plan of God. And so he's able to understand what Yeshua had come to do. Interesting, in Matthew, it's, it's early in, it's chapter, we have a chapter two, the original gospel of Matthew didn't have chapters and verse numbers and all the rest. So early, we see the, these foreigners showing up looking for the king of the Jews. We call it now chapter two. Then near the end of the book, we have another foreigner, the governor, Pilate, And he also refers to Yeshua as the king of the Jews. He wasn't really the governor. That prefect, uh, 
write in and, and, and send in, send in an audio pronunciation of procurator. I think it is so sorry. The charge that he put above Yeshua on the cross when he unjustly, shamefully crucified him. In the, in the three, in the local language, it was either Hebrew or Aramaic, and in the, the wider languages of Latin and Greek, so that the whole world, so to speak, would know that he had executed the king of the Jews. And one of the most ironic acts in all of history. And uh, last June, I did a, uh, an article, actually, that I read as a podcast. You can look it up, where I refer to this as one of the, the most anti-Semitic acts ever done as he held up the Jewish king to ridicule, not really knowing what he was doing, and how Yeshua embodied not just suffering in general, but Jewish suffering in particular. And when we don't understand that, we don't understand what God is really doing and what God really wants to do, that when non-Jewish people want to identify with the, the suffering Savior, they need to understand that they're identifying with the suffering King of the Jews. And if they don't, if we don't get that, our lives are not going to be fully what God wants them to be. And we're not really going to understand His Word as He intended it to be understood. And I probably should have said that the other way around. We wouldn't understand the Scriptures in the way we should, and therefore our lives won't bear the fruit and have the effect that, that they should. So once we understand the centrality of Israel and the plan of God, once we see the essential Jewishness of the gospel, then we don't begin to, to misinterpret some of the other things that occur. So there's this question in Acts chapter 1. Yeshua is about to return to heaven. He's going to ascend gives them final parting instructions. And he had spent 40 days with the apostles, getting them ready for his departure. And just as he's getting ready to go, they ask him the question, Acts 1, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? When we look at the scriptures through a skewed lens and we don't understand the place of Israel in God's plan, we end up with an interpretation that says, oh, there they were, they still don't get it. He was trying to teach them all these spiritual universal truths and they're still talking as if uh, they're expecting a physical material kingdom that he's going to establish in the way the Jewish people always thought. Yes, there were things they didn't understand. But they didn't get this fully wrong. It's actually the opposite. Yeshua came to teach about the kingdom, the rule of God, the rule of God over creation, not just his rule over our individual hearts, detached from everything else. And they understood that there was a central place for Israel in God's plan, and that that had never been rescinded. And so they were asking if this was going to be it. And his answer was, 
not now. Go wait for the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to come. Paul didn't seem to to have an issue with the place of Israel on the plan of God. And in fact, he saw it essential. When writing to the Romans, a, a, a group of believers, and at that time, either the Jewish people of Rome were still expelled, or they were just coming back. And Paul had discerned I don't know if he did it prophetically or he knew that there was growing animosity between non-Jewish believers, non-Jewish followers of Yeshua the Messiah. There's animosity between them and the Jewish, either Jewish people in general or Jewish believers. And it seems to be a key uh, issue in the entire book that a lot of people miss because of the skewed lenses of replacement theology. And so um, he gets finally to Romans 9-11. It's not the only place. We don't have time to get into the centrality of Israel in Romans, the, the place of the Jewish people in Romans. I talked a little bit last time um, during the, the phases of, of replacement theology. But um, in Romans 9-10 and 11, Paul's specifically dealing with the issue, did God reject his people? And he culminates his, his discussion in verse 26 of chapter 11, where he says, all Israel will be saved. The only way that Israel is not the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only way that can't be true is if we look at at the New Testament and the Bible through the skewed, skewed lens and make Israel something that it's not. The reason why I'm bringing it up here in this discussion of the centrality of Israel and the plan of God is that it's still an issue to Paul, that he wants the believers in Rome to know that God's not finished with his people, that there will be a day. Just like today we might say Israel doesn't believe in Yeshua, the Jewish people don't believe in their Messiah, the day is coming when they will. Now there's a remnant, like me, my wife, and my kids, Jewish believers. There's coming many more, many, many more Israel here means Israel. But then a lot of people, they want to jump to Galatians 6.16. And this is on the the skewed lens side, but it's important to say I haven't commented on it yet. Where people will say, it's so clear here that when Paul uses the term Israel, he's, he's using Israel to refer to the church, the believers, Jew and Gentile believers in, in Yeshua Jesus. Galatians 6.16 reads, near the end of his book, a letter to the Galatians, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Well, isn't it obvious? He's talking about God's people. God's people are the believers. But is he? If we look at this not through a skewed lens of replacement theology, but the clear lens of God's continued heart of faithfulness to the physical descendants of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we might see that for Paul to wish peace and mercy can equally be extended to all who are 
following God's way, and then he could throw in and upon the Israel of God. That he could all of a sudden, uh, to me, uh, to us, it, it might seem completely out of context that Paul would bubble up with a, 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 a wish of blessing upon his own natural people. But why should that be a problem? Why couldn't he not just say that? And the reason why I believe we don't is because we've had about 2,000 years of negative Jewish thinking and a negative Jewish lens through which we read the New Testament. But back to Romans 11, Paul doesn't think that way. Paul is clear, Romans 11 verse 29, talking about what God's going to do with the people of Israel in spite of their spirit, most of their spiritual condition at that time. He says the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God doesn't change his mind this way. He made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's going to keep them. Future expectations are also an essential uh, element of, of Israel's centrality in God's plans and purposes. Not only we're not done yet with regard to God's faithfulness to Israel and, and that he will turn us as a nation eventually to himself, just like he says right through the Hebrew Scriptures, the prophets in particular, in the New Testament, there's much about what's being expected ahead that centers on Israel, the Jewish people. Yeshua, in Matthew 23, verse 39, and elsewhere, speaking about Jerusalem's rejection of him and God's heart, his heart for Jerusalem, which stands for Israel and the land of Israel and all the rest. He says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Letting us know that even while he's not welcome, wasn't welcome then, not really welcome now, the people of Israel will one day welcome him with open arms and give him the greeting. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there's a hint here that his return is waiting on Israel's welcome. And that's also reflected in Acts 3 verse 20. This is Peter's second sermon, recorded sermon in the book of Acts. And he's preaching to an all-Jewish crowd. And he's calling them to rep- repent. And, it, and their repentance, what's being hinged on it, is Messiah's waiting to come and bring times of refreshing. The times of refreshing. There will be, uh, whether it's the resurrection itself or some other visitation of, of God, a, a type of revival, let's, let's people you know, muse over that, think about it, sure, but something big is expected as the Jewish people turn to back to our Messiah. 
That's why Paul says in Romans 11, verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, and he's talking about the fact how God used Jewish antagonism towards the preaching of the gospel to move the gospel to the nations, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And this could be, again, the coming resurrection or resurrection life being poured out among among us from heaven as the people of Israel turn to God. And Israel continues. There's something about the centrality of Israel and the plan of God that appears to continue forever. In the New Jerusalem, as described in Revelation 21, we have the New Jerusalem coming out of heaven to earth. And it says that uh, on the gates are written the names of the 12 tribes and the foundations of the city, the 12 foundations, are the names of the 12 apostles. First, this is telling us in some way, and I don't claim to fully understand Revelation, I think we need to be careful. I think it's, it's metaphorically graphic, but full of rich meaning. There's a suggestion here that the entrance into this, the new city from heaven on earth, the entrances are Jewish entrances. Is it just, sorry, (laughs) is it just memorials? Remember what happened long ago when God made promises? Or is there something more? There's something central about Israel. Now, someone want to like the some people like the idea that we've got the twelve tribes of Israel on the gates, and the twelve apostles written on the foundations. I'm not, maybe somebody out there knows what that's supposed to look like. I don't, but the point's the point. Whatever it is, and so we've got Israel, the gates, the church, the foundations. Isn't that isn't that nice? But I want to remind us all. Those are all Jewish names. And and the apostles are, are, are inheritors of the goodness of God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and then passed on to these precious leaders in Yeshua's day to bring the mission of God to the nations of the world. It was Jewish men and then and Jewish women as well in that early time, who risked their lives to bring the promise given to Abraham to the nations. How could we think that God's turned away from the chosen people, the people of Israel, unto this other thing, rather than his allowing people and nations to be grafted in to this cultivated olive tree. And as I've said, while there's an Israel centricity, the centrality of Israel on the planet of God, it is for the whole world. And that leads us to the benefits of once we understand the centrality of Israel on the planet of God and the centrality of Israel in the, in the scriptures, we're ready to, to receive blessings from scripture like never before 
And so next time, we're going to look at those benefits, some of. What I've shared today isn't exhaustive on on this subject, and certainly the benefits of God are virtually infinite, if not infinite. Before I go, I want to remind you about our Israel tour coming up in October. We're working for another time with Shore Study Tours out of the Old City in Jerusalem, and we have developed a very engaging, um, biblically-based tour um, that's unique, wonderfully unique in, in many ways. You can check that out at israelstudytours.ca. That's israelstudytours.ca. Also, be sure to check my own website, alangilman.ca, and, and you can find the Thinking Biblically podcast there. You can subscribe to my newsletter. You can find out how to support uh, this podcast and my the rest of my teaching ministry. And so until next time. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Biblically podcast with Bible teacher Alan Gilman. More information about Alan Gilman's Bible teaching is available at his website, alangilman.ca. Thank you.